This is Donald A. Morgan, ASC. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's going swell. How are you doing? It's going just fine. Hey, who's on the show today? Donald A. Morgan. And careful listeners will be like, hey, you guys had Don Morgan, DP of John Carpenter's Christine and Starman on some time ago. And to that, I would say, this is a different Donald (laughs) Morgan. (laughs) I would say strike X on the board. You're wrong. It's a different Donald Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. This is Donald A. Morgan, DP of literally every sitcom you've ever watched in your life holy crap and it is uh <laughs> I, I think it was a fascinating conversation because honestly i don't know very much about multi-camera i mostly know about single camera shooting but as someone with uh something of a theater background i'm not a theater lighting expert by any stretch of the imagination you know it was interesting to see that multi-camera uh, sitcoms and multi-camera shooting in a lot of ways has more in common with theater than it does with uh, with film in certain ways. But then, you know, you got your cameras and stuff. But he's been working on stuff all the way back to good times in the 1970s. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. He has an amazing resume, and it was it was fascinating to talk to him. And I think it's a, a great thing for our listeners to hear. You know, I, I don't know if it's that obvious, but we've been trying to vary it. And, and Alana Cody deserves so much of the credit for this, but we've been trying to mix it up and interview people who shoot stuff that aren't, you know, just theatrically released movies or, you know, single camera television. I mean, we love that stuff. It's probably why we both started wanting to do this in the first place, but it's really interesting to hear stories about stuff like shooting documentaries or shooting wildlife documentaries or shooting multi-camera sitcoms. It's, it's just a different world and a different approach. And, you know, if, if someone's, not already in the business and, you know, thinking about getting into it. it, I think it's good to hear all these different perspectives on how our entertainment is made. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this interview. I know I couldn't be on it at the time that it was recorded, but I'm really looking forward to, uh, to giving it a listen. So Ben, what's our uh, close focus this week? Uh, today for close focus, I almost wanted to talk about the impending possible strike that IATSE may be leveling on the AMPTP, but the discussions are about a week away. And so I don't know exactly what's going on with that. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was was talking about it on Facebook. Uh, he's a Steadicam operator. And uh, I think I, a lot of people in IATSE are preparing to batten down the hatches. And if that happens, it's, it's going to kill the business again. But personally, I come out on the side of labor. I'm behind IATSE in what they're talking about. Um, that's what we almost were going to talk about. <laughs> we're almost going to talk about. Yeah, so we kind of talked about that a little bit last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. But, but, what, what, but what did you want to talk about this week? What we wanted to talk about this week is the box office. And I know that we've been avoiding talking about COVID, but in the era of COVID, we just broke a box office record this past weekend, Labor Day weekend, with Shang Chi, which is the new. It's it's a Marvel movie, but it's not it's not Captain America. It's not Iron Man. It's not it's not a franchise I'd personally ever even heard of. But that maybe says more about my comic book reading uh, proclivities Um, with an all Asian led cast. And it's a very kung fu driven movie. looks really, really cool. But it busted the Labor Day box office haul 94.4 million on a 200 million dollar budget, which is a pretty big budget movie. But it made almost half of its budget back over this past Labor Day weekend, which means people are going to the movies. Holy crap. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I hear in New York they're doing like a vaccine pass sort of thing, but that still does not exist in uh, Los Angeles. They're just like blocking out some seats so you can't pack everyone in like sardines. But that's a that's a huge that's a huge, huge draw at the at the box office. Ninety four million. That is like more than three times the record in uh, the current record holder or the previous record holder, which was 2007's Halloween, uh, the, the one Rob Zombie directed. It's mm. hard to keep all of your various Halloween straight. There's so many. <laughs> There's only been one or two. Yeah, <laughs> There's, so There's many. a lot. But uh, but but that have a lot of movies. This yeah. is called and I, correct me if I get the pronunciation wrong. Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Something tells me they want to make nine more movies. So <laughs> I don't. Did they make one movie per <laughs> ring? Hey, if they keep making this kind of money, they'll add rings. They'll add a few more rings on onto the end. 
it might be 50 rings by before it's all said and done. There might be a lot of rings. It's just very interesting to me. I, and, you know, I have to say, I haven't seen the movie. I would love to see the movie. And I did go to the theater to see Candyman, which won't surprise you. Um, <laughs> not, not one bit. <laughs> I saw Candyman last weekend. But, um, yeah, it's it's nice to see that people are going back to the movies and also that movies don't appear to be super spreader events. You know, the the reason I'm personally less scared about going to the movies than I am about, say, eating in a restaurant is that mm. I can wear a mask the whole time I'm at the movies. There's n- nothing about the movies requires me to, you know, take off my mask. So, you know, but you can't can't eat if you got a mask on. And uh, yeah, that's right. so far, it seems like the, you know, the movie theaters are going pretty, pretty nutty with the with the protocols and uh, crossing my fingers. You know, people feel seem to feel safe going back. And we all want the theatrical experience to safely return. I think that's fair to say. And so I, you know, that's that's very fair. Yeah, I think so, we all want that. But I also think it's interesting because of the, shall we say, uh, soft box office reception of The Suicide Squad less than a month ago. And mm-hmm. my theory that day and date releasing is not doing these movies any favors. I mean, I love The Suicide Squad, but I already had HBO Max, so I watched it at my house. I didn't get in the car and go drive to a movie theater. And maybe if COVID wasn't a factor, I would have. But if you want to see uh, Shang-Chi, I believe the only way to see it is in the theater right now. I don't I don't even think they're doing a Disney plus thirty dollar charge up on that one at the moment. No, I think uh, it's theatrical only. I know it's not on my Disney plus uh, welcome screen, so it's it's got to yeah. be. Theater and we're only. about to see that again with James Bond in like a month or so. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting, too. Uh, James Bond really does, you know, pack them in. So it's, it's the number one franchise for MGM. It'll be it'd be interesting to see uh, what happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, and James Bond not getting released last year is uh, part of what is explained to be the demise of Pacific theaters. Like a lot of the theater chains were holding out hope for a James Bond movie to kind of bring in a giant audience. And the Daniel Craig James Bond movies have done really, really well. And um, I'm pretty sure the new one's going to do the same. And uh, it not coming out last year kind of kind of threw a wrench in the work of the business. But I also would say not worth it if one extra person died of COVID. <laughs> you know, it's not worth one person dying so that these movie theater chains can stay in business. That's not a good a good business model. But hopefully we're at a point now where it's manageable. How do you feel? What, what What's your vibe on going into a movie theater? Well, I've done it once so far since the pa- pandemic. I haven't been back. And it was what a was it? pretty decent experience. It was it, it was uh, Quiet Place Two, and oh. Uh, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed right. Quiet Place Two. Uh, but I have to say that it, I did feel like I was one of the only people in the theater wearing a mask. So it was, you know. Oh, really? Uh, there was Every qu- time I've yeah, gone to, I've, f- I've gone to the movies like five times since the pandemic appeared to look like it was about to end and then didn't, and maybe more. And every time I've gone, it's like everyone in the theater is wearing a mask. You know, it's really interesting. I just got a little bit of perspective having recently been in another state and uh, it's a it's a purple state. But uh, I, I will say that the indoor mask mandate here, I'd say most people most of the time are just going for it. When I was in the theater before when that was going on, I will say that, hey, it was the dark and I kind of looked around a little and I saw that people couldn't wait to take off their masks. But I think today it really matters where you're at. And I think in California, I think people are probably they're, they're taking it really seriously in some other states. Uh, they're really not. I, this is this is a familiar territory we've trotted down several times. We don't have to, to necessarily go there on, on on this episode as well. Well, but, I, uh, I do I'll, think it's interesting though that like you can ask people to wear clunky, weird ass electric 3D headsets in theaters, and people are cool with that. So that's right. You know, you you could slap on the old blue <laughs> dental hygienist mask, and it's not really that big of a deal. No, I wouldn't say it's a big deal at all. But uh, but hey, I think it's time that we get to the interview with Donald A. Morgan. All right, here he is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here today with legendary, award-winning DP of multi-camera, a lot of sitcoms, Donald A. Morgan. And and I have to say, like, the sitcoms that I have been watching my entire life, you know, when I look through your filmography, I feel like when I was a little kid, I was watching stuff like The Jeffersons and Silver Spoons and stuff like that. And uh, and I'm 50, so uh, you've been at it for a minute. So thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, Ben. No problem here. Uh, I also wanted to mention for anyone listening to this who's who listens to us a lot, we interviewed a different Don Morgan or Don Morgan, uh, who was the DP of like John Carpenter movies like Christine and and uh, Starman and stuff like that. And uh, you were telling me off mic, you you've actually the two of you uh, have met several times, correct? Yeah, we've uh, 
what's really funny, okay, he's Donald M. I'm Donald A. Uh, we're both in the ASC. Uh, we're both 600 uh, <laughs> members. And uh, at one point in time, we had the same agent. And oh, no. I would get calls for air shot doing some air stuff. And he would get calls doing multicam work. But out of all the different times we've uh, got together, we've always taken a picture. And um, I've got about six or seven uh, really nice shots kind of pointing at each other. And (laughs) good guy, good guy. You should have taken each other's jobs. Once in a while, like he just shows up to to shoot silver spoons or you show up to shoot some amazing aerials. Yeah. You know, it's what's really funny is we would get calls. I would get calls. I would get my union card would go to him. His union card would come to me. Just a small world. Yeah. So before we even get into sort of your backstory, which I think is really fascinating, I kind of wanted to bring up one specific aspect of your backstory that keeps popping up. It's a pattern I keep noticing, and that's that you did not study cinematography. You studied architecture. Is that correct? Yeah. Actually, you know, I wanted to do printing and architecture and graphic arts in high school. I went to Hamilton High School. And so During my early days, I was on the football team, on the baseball team. I was also a musician, but what really caught my fancy was uh, architecture. And so through high school, I always had a uh, architecture class and thought that that was my calling. And what's really nice about that is the visualization of putting two-dimensional things in your head and and flip them in and make them three-dimensional. And uh, that was something that became very easy, not knowing that I was going to uh, use that part of the the brain later on. Also, there was the graphic arts and playing with, uh, uh, during high school, I was going into uh, what, what they call color separation. And so I would take these Uh, negatives and then separate them for uh, printing. And so Mm -hmm. you would take uh, the three color printing presses and and going in to that. And so I would take these black and white negatives, eight by tens and and different densities to put the certain colors to make the posters as colorful as possible. Later on, I would end up using that skill. But getting out of high school and going into college, I really thought that music was my calling. Well, your, your dad was a musician, right? Yeah, Al Morgan. He played with Cap Calloway. Whoa. A, a variety of cats in the mid thirties. Well, did, did, did you like grow up hanging out with Cab Calloway? Well, you know, what's interesting is as I've been now, uh, as they call a stage rat, you uh, <laughs> go and do a variety of different different shows. And so I was doing this thing called the Apollo. It's the Smith Hemian, which is a production company out of Hollywood here. But what they would do is Brzezhnikov on Broadway and Margaret, uh, all these big, and they would fly in these lighting designers from England. So we did this one that was uh, called the, the Apollo. So they had an Apollo stage at the front of the Apollo on stage over a KTTV, but they brought in Cab Calloway to do a number. And so out of all the years I knew my, my dad had played with him. I said, well, this would be a time that I'm, I could um, meet Mr. Calloway. So he was standing off on the side, which was really kind of cool. And I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Calloway, my name is Don Morgan. My dad used to play with you. And he just like stepped back and didn't say anything. And I didn't know where he, what he was going to do. Oh no. (laughs) And uh, he came up, he gave me a hug and he was really happy to to meet me. And uh, he kind of told me, he said, he never thought that my dad would have kids. And I don't know why he went there, but. (laughs) So, so uh, he traveled, he played with cab for about 10 years and and on on YouTube, YouTube. There's all these like music videos of him, of Cap Calloway and and dad was in in the band and you see him throwing the bass around and and doing his thing. And my dad was bass player of the year in 1945 in Esquire. And so that was like the Grammys of of the 40s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so we've got a uh, a nice trophy here where it's made out of uh, solid silver. 
heady old thing, which is uh, kind of a trip. But it's really very special. And uh, we had a, a couple chances to say hello and, yeah, and work together. So That's awesome. Well, I, mean, I always think it's kind of interesting when people pursue a career in the creative arts, I think the cliche a lot is that people's parents are like, no, don't do that. You know, choose something stable. But, you know, in, in your case, your father had chosen and had been successful in a career in the creative arts. So do you think that that opened you up to the opportunity that a creative career such as the one that you eventually ended up in? And I know it wasn't the one you started thinking you were going to do. But do you think that it opened you up to thinking like, yeah, yeah, that can be a stable thing I can do? Well, you know, it's interesting. I guess as you get older, you do a variety of different types of things. You know, once again, when you're going on that path, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. I tried out mm -hmm. for St. Louis Cardinals. And so uh, that talent was there. My dad really wanted me to play baseball. So I've been playing baseball ever since, uh, you know, six or seven on different teams all the way through college. But I thought music was my thing too, because through grammar school, I've been in junior high band, orchestra, then through high school, I was in the orchestra. So, you know, you're, you're in that environment and well, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll do this. And so you, you do all these things and you never really know until you hit about your mid twenties mm -hmm. where I saw, I, I saw the light, you know. <laughs> uh, about what age were you when you did start working in lighting? 26, 27, where I was in, I was in the mailroom over at KTTV. Uh, music wasn't paying the bills. Like, were you, were you in a band? Were you performing? Were you? Yeah, there, uh, the, this band that, that I played, it was called Knee Deep, a power trio. And, you know, that being the 70s, you know, kind of a Hendrix type thing in living color type band. And so here in Los Angeles, that type of music kind of faded out when disco was coming in. And that's something that I just didn't really want to get into. But most of the clubs wanted you to play disco. So mm -hmm. we didn't really work that much because having a, a Black Power Trio band. But, you know, we come from blues background and high energy. And so I've, I've followed all through my high school, John Mayall, Eric Clapton, Cream, yeah. all those guys. So that was my influence through uh, rock and roll and, and that type of stuff. So, you know, from the outside, it just, it, it occurs to me that, you know, between uh, the graphic design stuff you were doing, the music stuff you were doing, the architecture stuff you were doing, in a way you, you were sampling different creative fields. And so when you were working in the mailroom, you were brought in and kind of like placed in the lighting department, correct? Yeah, I, I thought that I might do uh, audio, mm -hmm. you know, mixing or something like that because of my music background. But after I moved into the computer room and printing out checks, and, and I thought that because of uh, computers, uh, IBM 360s, they said that they would teach me, but I just would, on my breaks, go up there, up on stage and look at what they were doing on, on stage. And I thought that that would really work. So I quit the computer room and quit the mail room and put my name on a list for engineering. Well, they called me for lighting. And I said, well, I want to do audio. I said, well, we have a lighting call. I said, okay, I need to work. So as I started to do more and more, uh, I, they put me on the, the Jeffersons. They put me on Good Times. I did each one of those shows for about, I did the Good Times for about two seasons. I did the Jeffersons about four seasons. And then uh, Three's Company, a variety of different shows. And what was really kind of neat is on our stages, there was Soul Train, and then you've, you've got Name That Tune, all these other types of shows coming in. So we got a, a different exposure to different types of lighting with, uh, and then during the summertime, there were dramas that were coming through. And what would happen is these film actors would come in and donate their check to the church. And so these would air on ABC, Christmas, Easter, New Year's. I actually LD'd two of these, one with Patty Duke and then another one with Elizabeth Taylor. So it was really uh, an experience talking with these directors and that, that came through. And, uh, and so we would do like four or five of these 
And, you know, I would be electrician on one or two of them and the LD on another two of them. And uh, just so I, I'm, I'm clear, LD just stands for lighting director, right? Lighting director, correct. So I was getting my skills as far as lighting concerned, sitting with and around uh, the directors, uh, talking to the camera operators. And so all that is you're being exposed to the environment. And then also I would be in-house lighting director or gaffer for these movies that would come in. James Crabe, John Alonzo, and a couple other good guys would come through. And so I got a chance to sit down and talk with these guys. And they said, if you're ever on you know, the film lots and we're there, please come by and say hello. So Tommy came over after Norman Lear had left the lot and they went over to Universal and said, Don, the DP is leaving the show. I need somebody to take over two shows. Do you want the job? We've gone through the, all the, the guys in the union. They don't, they don't want the job uh, because it's scale, but that scale was $4 an hour more than I was making over at KTTV. So I said, this would be an opportunity to get my film card, not knowing where that was going to take me. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was something I said, yes. So I put my resignation in over at KTTV and uh, moved over there. And as I walked through the, the stage, it was a it was a major day. Those doors are were so big, and it was everything. <laughs> From then on, every day at lunch, every day uh, I would. And matter of fact, John Alonzo was working doing Scarface, and I heard oh, wow. him a lot on stage twelve. So uh, during my lunch hour, I went down there and asked for John. John said, yes, come on up. And so he was up on the third floor. They were using multiple cameras, shooting the, the scene where the guys come in from the outside and they're doing the shoot up and Pacino's sitting at the desk. And, and it was, it was uh, the best hour that I could have ever had because they just started. That's insane. Yeah, it was, it was a great, great, <laughs> great day, great day. And so there weren't many DPs of color on that lot. And actually, I don't think there was anybody. And so I, I got a little bit of blowback. Guys would, you know, I, I would be introduced as the DP and it's, oh, you do that television stuff. You know, they didn't, they do features and those guys do television. So it was always- uh, Well, that's lame. Well, yeah. and, and, and oh, how the tables have turned. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it was more about elitism that was of a racial nature or do you think it was, we shoot features, you shoot television? You know, was there discrimination at that time? Well, I, I really think uh, it was a little bit of both. Mm. Uh, I didn't really see it. I, I saw it, but I really didn't see it because I was so focused on doing my job better than because I was in learning mode. I was mm. like intense. And so because I just didn't want to have anybody have to ask any question twice. And that was my my little motto to myself that I've got this, uh, you know, you're here and this is the only opportunity, but may, it might've been, I, you know, when, when guys would have, okay, uh, say on the side of the camera, they would have their film stock, what F stop, and there'd be some calculations on a piece of paper. Well, the guy who, who's operating would put his hand over it, you know, and, and introduce himself. And I'm looking at the lens and so just kind of looking and then he put his hand over and it's just that subtle little bullshit <laughs> that, mm. that uh, is just something that I do remember. And I would think about this seeing all this happen. And I said, well, it's too bad because I'm here and, it's, and uh, you know, I'm going to make it all happen. So it was uh, interesting, but that never happened, let's say, on John Alonzo's set. They were very, really open, so it wouldn't be on every, every set. But there are guys that features are more productive than, than television. And you're the DP that does those three camera shows. So they didn't think of too much uh, of, of the guys in the back. Can I ask you a question also to, to back up a little bit? When you were working on, at the beginning of, of your career, working on stuff like Good Times and the Jeffersons and stuff like that, did you realize what a cultural milestone you were, you were involved with at that time? Or was it, did it just feel like a job? I mean, these are shows people still talk about today. You know, you know that, that it was groundbreaking just because of uh, Norman. The people that Norman would hire in his office 
the assistants, the folks that are the answer the phones, all, all, we're all people of, of color, which was really kind of cool. And then, and the show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so there was a camaraderie on that lot that he was trying to make a difference. And then you can see by the shows, the Jeffersons, Good Times, and then uh, Different Strokes, those types of things. And these were all 227. Uh, yeah. These were all groundbreaking shows. And so he had some simpatico, you know, of uh, making a, a difference. So I want to ask you a couple of uh, things about craft. Uh, I can't speak to all of our listeners, but I can speak to, to my own personal experience. And like I told you off mic beforehand, most of my experience is in, uh, is in single camera or, you know, a modified single camera. I don't know what you'd call basically a single camera movie or whatever where you have two or three cameras. But you're still lighting for a scene and then moving the location or, you know, moving everything around. Whereas what you do is extremely specialized. And I'm curious, from my outsider point of view, looks a lot more like stage lighting, like for theater would be. Although, you know, theater lighting is dealing with the uh, dynamic range of the human eye and you're dealing with the dynamic range of whatever camera you're shooting on. So, you know, I assume that the brightest bright and the darkest dark would be a little bit more uh controlled than it would be in theater per se but can you tell me a little bit about about that craft like you brought up a little bit earlier how a lot of times you would light a set before you even saw any blocking and that makes sense because the whole the whole show takes place often in you know one to three sets or whatever well you know i i see where the walls are i see where the doors are there's a a, a basic of a lot of us use back cross to light three-quarter lighting from upstage and uh, pick a camera. Now, uh, the different cameras that you have, I treat them as different stocks of uh, film stocks. So each, each camera company, their cameras have a specialized look. And the quality of light that we kind of uh, set up that if you want to go a softer, harder, Tungsten, LED, I'll approach it somewhat the same, put a couple of back crosses in, in each set, you know, and then there's a little bit of formula that I, I, I use, but where they move on set, it's always three-point lighting. So what's blowing my mind more than anything, and again, I've worked in theater, so I, I, I sort of have an idea of what you're talking about, but it's, it seems a lot more like you have to create a key light that also works as a backlight or can also work as a fill light, depending on, on the moment. You have to have a camera position that can be a two-shot or a single or a wide, depending on what's going on. Obviously, in a single camera, or when you're shooting a movie or whatever, you know, it's like you're tailoring each shot, each moment to exactly what you need to see and only what you need to see. You can move the camera, you can change the lens, you can change the lighting. You obviously can, you, you have a limited amount of abilities to do those things. You can change the focal length, but you can't like move the camera 10 feet to the left where an audience no, member no, might No, that's sitting. not necessarily because there's different configurations based on now budgets. That's a whole budget thing. They're throwing the, the creative in. Um, what I like to do is if I could go with four dollies, that's the ultimate of, of having that on stage. But a lot of times we'll have two peds and two dollies. And those dollies can get you movement that 10 feet that you're talking about walking from one side. Instead of panning, yeah. it's, it's great to, to utilize uh, the dolly shot. But it's, it's, still a, it's still a massive, I mean, because of the form. It, you know, because the form is more like theater, it's a massive restraint on what you can do with the camera. You can't put the camera where an audience member would be. You, you know, you, you're kind of in specific zones and, and you have to make all of these things work for so many different things. It's, it's just fascinating to hear you talk about it. Yeah, but you know, what's interesting is the configuration that I try, I'll, I'll try to do two and two. But if I can, like uh, the show I was doing, uh, Last Man Standing, or, or, well, actually, going back to home improvement, uh, we had four pedestals and a jib. I was about to say, that was one where, like, you you kind of innovated that, right? Like, nobody had done that before, correct? Nobody had done that before, but we needed, the, the reason why we had it, we had to cover Wilson's face. And so we, that had to get, we had to get in specific over the fence, over his shoulder. And so it was a, for the pilot, a, well, we'll just use it for the pilot. But it came in and worked so well, I said, we have to use it. But then said, well, we need the four cameras. So, so 
Disney said, okay, we'll give you the money to do all five. So it was constantly. And so I said, wherever that jib needs to be, we're going to make it happen, make it work. And so tops of scenes, if you ever see uh, seen the tops of each, uh, each scene, we would break the fourth wall, start overhead, start behind. Th- it's just some really interesting stuff. And I always tried to have that configuration where we took it to last man standing, where we had one dolly in the B position. It goes A, B, C, and X. X was on the right side. A is on the left side. And uh, I would put the jib arm in the C position. It wouldn't be used for high shots, low shots. It just, you're able to put that camera up and get it into position. But then it was on a, a dolly, a custom dolly that he can pull in and pull out and actually do moves and, and just really makes doing these types of shows very, very cool. And so now everybody's trying to do hybrid, uh, shoot three days a week, four dollies. And so there's all these uh, configurations, but the, a lot of the networks would rather us do these shows by f- using just four pedestals because uh, it saves money. You know. So, so I, have, I have a super hacky question I want to ask you, and this is, this is a hack question, but, but I must know, you know, because you have worked on so many enormous sitcoms and you've also done a lot of, you know, live stuff. And like you said, you, you studied how to light uh, at, at the New York Opera and stuff like that. Have you ever considered uh, doing, moving, trying out single camera? Have you, or have you done it? And I missed it in your filmography somewhere like a single camera or, or are the skills so completely separate that this is more interesting to you? No, uh, listen, you know, what's funny is uh, I try to do some kind of single camera project every summer. And I'm oh, just, really? yeah, I'm, I'm prepping a, uh, a independent little movie. And though and those, you know, it keeps it fresh. You have to be able to see so uh, sometimes you get pegged that this is the only thing you do. And so that's something that it's been tough to break into a big feature, but I understand. But you know what's interesting is I've got about four or five different features that I've done and little shorts, you know, 20 page, 30 page. Uh, this one that I'm doing is a little 10 page, two day shoot and I'm not getting paid for it. It's just something that I want to help get it out there. And I, I know what it takes to to put it together. And it's just something that you do get boxed in a corner. But you know what? what's interesting is my family knows me, which is really important. And mm-hmm. I, I chose to do television and this type of work. I, we rarely work more than 10 hours, 12 hours at the most, no 14 hour days, distant location. And so I know that uh, we'll do three weeks up and one week down. And so there's things that that I really like about having this type of job, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and deal with this. And so what I'll do within that square box, I try to make it as creative as I can bring to the table. And so, you know, it's just uh, sit back, watch a movie going, oh, maybe I can bring this and maybe I can adapt this. Oh, that's nice look or this and that or and, uh, yeah, and in, in no way am I saying that like one is better than the other, more desirable. And it, but it, but like when I look at your career, it's like you could just be a union electrician your whole your whole life. There are plenty of people who do that and they're perfectly happy. Or you could have just you could have gotten up to lighting uh, lighting director and said, this is where I'm going to stop. You moved all you you kept moving up all the way to cinematographer, you know, t- top of that of that department. And I'm just curious if different kinds of cinematography are interesting because, you know, like someone could be a, a lighting designer for theater their whole life and that's you know that's a, a brilliant career it's, 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 it's been uh, when the opportunity is there and uh you know once again you get pegged that you don't get so there's calls that i, I know that i don't get or i like to meet as many different people as possible maybe they'll give me a shot you know um mm. but i know that you know on a 20 million dollar uh, budget project well i deal with that over the season but you know, I know per episode, I'm dealing with $2 million. I've got to get it, make sure it's in the can yeah. per week. And so there, there is something to that, that I know that 
the nuances that it what it takes to to get it done. But you know, um, I guess you know, directing some things, I guess, is the next thing. You know, I'm yeah, not planning to call it quits yet. So. <laughs> clearly not clearly not no no that's awesome i think that that's an amazing place for us to end on before we go is there any place online where people can uh, see your work obviously they can watch like you know 80 percent of all sitcoms that have been made in the last 40 years and they'll see your work in there somewhere but uh, uh, I, I, uh there's vimeo uh under donald a morgan i will check it out and follow you on vimeo yeah so um other than that i just uh 80 episodes of the ranch uh the upshaws the Connors, uh, all that stuff's on Hulu, and and you're working on the on the new season of the Connors right now, correct? Uh, we're getting ready to do that. Yes. What's interesting about that is they're allowing me to, even though it's a comedy, they they want a little more drama, and a lot of the storylines are are very uh, dramatic, and so I try to take, as I call a a roller coaster, and when the funny stuff is, it just gets a little brighter su- subtly, and then when it's heavy then I start shading the room. So that's uh, nice. Yeah. So those are things they kind of yell at, yelled at me. I got an email a couple months about <laughs> saying that uh, I've taken it just a little bit too far. And so I've got to. <laughs> no, nobody's really dark. It's just, they just feel, you know, this is a comedy show, Mr. Morgan. And that, that came from ABC. So yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. So that's okay. Well, uh, Donald, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, this has been one of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time because I I literally knew nothing about what you did. Uh, You know, I mean, I knew your filmography, but I didn't know how you did what you did while walking in. It's just fascinating. Well, I hope I answered a few questions and told a few stories. And uh, (laughs) if, you know, anybody wants to reach out, they can reach out. And uh, we'll see what, if the Upshaws brings a... Uh, Emmy this year so nice yeah and congratulations on all the awards thank you so so much so that was Donald A. Morgan awesome awesome uh, dude uh, who's made uh, God knows how many hours of entertainment that we've all watched over the last four decades Uh, (laughs) five decades I've certainly watched a ton of his early stuff so for sure yeah (laughs) lots and lots of stuff now that to me just fascinating guy and now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is time for our patent pending uh, short ends segment. <laughs> uh, what is your pet obsession this week? Well, you know, it's actually something that uh, I, I was a bit late on the news. It turns out that Trey Parker and Matt Stone, famously of the South Park franchise, did a deal back in 2007 to split the digital rights to the South Park Empire 50-50 with CBS Viacom. So because they made that deal back in 2007, they basically just re-upped a new deal with them for just south of a billion dollars. and Just it, South know, Park of a billion dollars? <laughs> yes, $935 million. It's like, it, it's this incredible deal, which seems basically unheard of. And now that, you know, these digital rights, these streaming rights is the centerpiece of all of these, these deals that are going on right now with the studios. It's very, very important uh, revenue, very, very important uh, to the filmmakers. You've got major stars threatening to sue or suing studios over this streaming income. And because Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I, I don't know if it's foresight or if it was, uh, they got really lucky, but you know, they made a deal for 50 50 split on on this revenue and so it's worth huge amounts of money and here's the thing this is just a re-up on their contract in like 2027 something like that they have to re-up again and the value of their property is now over a billion dollars or estimated around a billion dollars so so there it is south park which is it looks like one of the more uh lower budgetly produced shows of all time and it's got you know a couple decades worth of seasons plus 23 seasons now uh, they have made so much money off of this franchise. They're continuing to make money. They really only have one show. And when you think about like the Shonda Rhimes and the other people out there who have these huge empires and they're not, and they make tons of shows and they're not worth that nearly as much as, as South Park. Boy, those guys have done uh, incredible. I think, I think you're forgetting about That's My Bush, which was a TV show they made in like 2000. 
<laughs> sure. I'm, I'm forgetting about That's My Bush. And I, I know mm. they also made, uh, you know, other features too, like basketball and stuff like that. But really, Team South America Park World is, Police. I, I, you know, I'm not forgetting that. I love that movie. It's, it's really Sh- you know, shot by Bill Pope. That's right. Of course. Famously. Uh, it, it Look, their, their South Park, though, has become, has been, and I don't even think it has, like, real international distribution where it's dubbed into a bunch of other languages. They say, I think that's still, like, not even on the table. I think that that's coming. So there's a whole article from, uh, from last month in the Hollywood Reporter about this, which breaks down all the specifics. But, man, I would not have guessed that the show that I, uh, I watched religiously when it first came out and would get together with friends and we'd all hang out in their living room and watch South Park. I would not have guessed that all these years later, it would still be the cultural touchstone and phenomenon that it is today and making the creators, uh, you know, probably more than a billion dollars over the years, billions of dollars. I I will never forget when I was a projectionist at the Florida Film Festival. Uh, One day, uh, my boss, a guy named C.B. Kirby, ran into the office and was like, everybody get in the theater right now. You have to watch this. (laughs) <laughs> and the original South Park short, The Spirit of Christmas, was submitted to the film festival. I believe this was in 1997. And we all went in the theater and we watched probably a VHS copy of The Spirit of Christmas. And it was just so unbelievably funny. And everybody uh, who worked at the Enzion Theater, like, you know, we were, uh, you know, laughing our asses off. And I remember hearing, like, right around then or maybe a little bit after then that they'd signed a deal to make a TV show. And I'm like, there's no way they can keep that that level of shock value up. Like, it was all shock humor in the, in the spirit of Christmas. And probably, I'm sure you can find it online. And probably if you look at it now, it's not nearly as shocking as it was in, in 1997. A lot of what made it shocking was, you know, a bunch of eight-year-old kids cursing their faces off. You know, it was just taboo. But yeah, they, they've done, you know, some pretty amazing work. And I, I think my favorite thing they ever did was the Book of Mormon, the play that they did. But um, South Park is pretty astonishing, you know, and uh, when you talk about the deal they cut, it kind of reminds me of when uh, George Lucas sold Star Wars to 20th Century Fox and he wanted the merchandising. And they were That's like, right. And they gave it to him with, 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 yeah, with, no, with, with no real fight. <laughs> yeah, like, they were like, here you go. Gonna... Here's all the garbage that you, know, you wanted the, these rights. No problem. Here you go. And yeah. he built an empire thanks to Kenner and all their toy manufacturers yeah, yeah. and licensing deals and everything else. I mean, good, good for all those guys. Uh, I yeah, guess. absolutely. I mean, you know, if we go out to lunch, it's definitely on them. But uh, <laughs> but no, but I, I, I mean, I really appreciate what uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone have been able to do. And, you know, there was a documentary about the making of South Park, which is, I think, called Seven Days to Air. And the mm. thing is, yeah, it does look cheap. It's because they came up with a method to do animation so that they could be very topical. Because like an episode of The Simpsons takes like nine months from the time they write it to the time you see it on television minimum and uh south park they like record it and animate it the week that it airs so it's just a crash and burn cycle for those guys uh but they've you know came up with all these innovations so that they could do that and they could be very very topical so uh you know i mean and that's part of the magic of the show that that really is something that that you know really makes it feel uh fresh immediate and uh i think so engaging is that it's being produced and it's referencing what's in the culture and you know not not in the last six months last year but that week like immediate immediately so ben what's your uh short end this week i feel like we can't let this week pass without mentioning the matrix resurrections which is uh, they just dropped a teaser for it. A uh, trailer is supposed to drop uh, pro- mm. maybe by the time our this episode is airing. It's our first Matrix movie in, you know, what, probably 15 years. It's uh, directed this time only by Lana Wachowski. Lily Wachowski sat this one out and uh, not shot by Bill Pope, as all the other matrices were, uh, but instead shot by John Toll. And uh, I watched the teaser, and I have to say, I'm extremely intrigued. Now, John Toll's been working with the Wachowskis. I believe he shot Sense8 and Jupiter Ascending and some of their other more recent stuff. But for uh, especially Jupiter Ascending, when I think about, and I have to judge Lana Wachowski separately from her two-headed directing team with Lily, I have to judge her separately. She's her own director, so it's going to be different. 
I assume, but I don't want to cast any aspersions. I'm really a big fan of the first Matrix, and I think it's one of the greatest movies of the last 50 years. The other two, eh, they're okay. Like, I wasn't way into them, and they didn't really need to exist because the first one was such a great standalone piece. And so I'm looking forward to this, and I will definitely see this. They are not filmmakers who would ever get on my no-fly list. I love their work because it's it's always very original and different, but I don't always love it. You know what I mean? Like, I love it for its originality, but I, I don't always go on the ride. And I think stuff like Jupiter Ascending, most people would probably be on the that's not a great movie side of that movie. Their visuals are amazing. Their sequences are amazing. Their use of visual, their pioneering of visual effects, things like bullet time and stuff like that. All genius work. So I'm just very interested and cautiously optimistic and will 1000% see the Matrix Resurrections. But anyway, it's just kind of an exciting thing to to see. And I've watched the original Matrix probably, I, I think I might've watched it like three or four months ago. And it mostly holds up, you know, the visual effects, obviously visual effects always get dated, but even with, even given that, I think it holds up reasonably well and is just gorgeous, gorgeous to look at and, and just such a brilliant piece of filmmaking. So I'm interested to see if uh, lightning can strike twice. And I, I actually posted a thing on Twitter, kind of just asking people like, what's, what's a time that a filmmaker has returned to a franchise or a property that they helped create like years later and, and, and made something really good. And a few people brought up movies. I, I brought up Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which was when he returned to the Nightmare on Elm Street series and kind of turned it on its head in a very interesting way. But a better example uh, was Mad Max Fury Road, which someone tweeted at me. There, there are several, but I sort of feel like for every Mad Max Fury Road, there's like 10 uh, Prometheuses, you know, where Ridley Scott returns to the alien well. And in my opinion, meh, I didn't love it. Uh, I'm not, you know, there's, there's a lot to like about it, but it wasn't, if it didn't exist, the world would not be a poorer place. So where do you sit on, on the matrix of matrix? You know, I think there's been enough time that the series can come back. And I think that an entirely new generation of people will potentially be on board. And the reasons perhaps that you weren't in love with two and three, as I think a a lot of people, uh, a lot of people out there weren't. Uh, I think might have been very difficult for the filmmakers to decode at the time because they put in a lot of the same stuff in two and three that was in one. But I don't think it was the same stuff that necessarily spoke to the audience. And I think that they actually have a chance essentially to kind of reboot now going in after such a a big period of time. And I got to say, the marketing machine is already starting up really well on this. I know there was a test screening, uh, but the original What is the Matrix website is now live again. And there's a whole, you know, other sort of thing they're trying to, to sell the story. I've been involved very, very tertiarily on the fringes of a couple of uh, Warshawski projects uh, in the early days, including Sense8 and Speed Racer uh, because of companies I was working with or tests that the DPs wanted to do and things like that. And I have to say that the entire creative teams that are assembled for these projects, they don't leave a lot to chance. They really do all their homework and tons of training and all kinds of stuff that that goes together. And it seems to me that they've had a, a long time to put this together, so I have very high hopes. I have high hopes that this captures all the sort of magic of the original Matrix back again, and I'm not exactly sure where the story goes from here, so I'm interested to see what, what happens. It'll it'll be great. I mean, honestly, if Keanu Reeves just kicks a bunch of people's asses, I'll probably be okay with just that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's such a nostalgic... It's, it's almost synonymous with its time. It was in its moment... I remember uh, talking to our friend Jonathan Mangum in the summer of 99 before the movie had come out. And I was like, man, can you wait to see the new Star Wars movie? He's like, Matrix is going to be cooler. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> Star Wars is the best thing ever. And I can't wait to see it. And, and, uh, uh-huh. and uh, how, how wrong you were. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not a fan of Star Wars Episode One. I'm not afraid to, to lay that out. Uh, hot take. I don't care for the prequels. And the Matrix is such a fresh, such a cool idea. And I think its freshness and coolness still works today. Like, I, I, I can't wait till my son's old enough to watch it. I think it's an exciting and fun and visually uh, beautiful movie. Again, shot by Bill Pope, you know, whose, whose work is just amazing. It's a masterpiece. And I feel like it's always dangerous to go back to a masterpiece. But, uh, uh, you know, when I think about Mad Max Fury Road, like, I don't think anyone thought, oh, George Miller can't pull off another Mad Max movie. Oh, he knocked out of the park. Uh, b- Incredible. Uh, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road uh, might be my favorite Mad Max movie. So it's like, here's uh, crossing my fingers that Lana Wachowski pulled a George Miller and we're going to have, you know, a Matrix movie that uh, that we can all stand behind. And I'm sure that 
at worst, it's still going to be like a visual feast of some of the best action filmmaking of this year. Of that, I have no doubt. You know, expectations are high, but I expect they will be met. So uh, let's yeah. hope. Anyway, uh, but that's my little, my weird obsession this week. So, Ilya, uh, where can people find you if they are looking to find you on uh, the Internet or actually even in the real world? If they want to find me on the Internet, uh, they can find me through all the usual sort of social things. I am at Ilya Friedman at the usual types of places. I don't TikTok. I don't uh, Snapchat, but everywhere else I'm gen- generally there. So if is you're Snapchat's there, you can, still you can big. I, I don't. Is Snapchat still a big thing. You know, I think it really is for the under like 14 crowd, but I, I couldn't I tell you. I haven't that. heard anything about Snapchat in a long time. I'm sure it's it, still. It, it oh. seems to be a thing. I don't know. I mean, and, in MySpace the real world, is still a thing, but you know. Well, yeah, sort of. Yeah. In the real yeah. world, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, which is also found online at hotredcameras.com. We are the sponsor of the show. We sell all kinds of incredible equipment and we support the studios and filmmakers at every level to make their technological dreams come true. Whatever sort of gear they need, we can uh, provide it. We are dealers for all the major brands and even some of the minor ones and as well as some exclusive stuff that you can only find in our shop. Uh, Ben, where, where can people find you? Uh, please find me at benrockonline.com. There you can link to all my socials. And uh, people who uh, are listeners to the show have been uh, finding me on LinkedIn and Twitter and whatnot. And, uh, you know, give me a shout out. Say, uh, hey, listener to the show. Maybe we'll even read what you say on the air. We've, we've done it before. Yeah, we I say did it on it just the air a, like, we're, like we're broadcasting the shit. <laughs> you know, anyway. we, we, we kind of do, though. It, I mean, the turnaround time is pretty quick. Usually the time that we record this, the time that goes to air is 24 to 48 hours at most. So so it's almost almost. So there. we're sort of like South Park in that way. <laughs> we're just like bit. South Park. And therefore, I would like my billion dollars. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, I am not nearly as funny nor as uh, foul mouthed, but uh, but I'm trying my best. I am at least as foul mouthed and maybe some percentage is funny. So, Ilya, who do we need to thank this week? Uh, let's thank Ben Katz, who's going on vacation. Enjoy your vacation, Ben Katz. I don't know when you're going to edit this. Hopefully tomorrow. <laughs> I think you will edit tomorrow, but then, <laughs> then, then you're gone. I know you're going on vacation for a while, so. I don't, I'm never going on vacation again. Uh, <laughs> who else should we thank today? Hey, let's thank Kay's Alatrachi. Kay's, who is probably listening to us right now and, I, I don't know, thinking of, uh, thinking of comments to tell us. No, no, he, he definitely does. And then he uh, messages to me on Facebook, you know, his, his side of it. And, and I really just feel like we need to get a topic that he passionately believes in or a topic that he just doesn't care about and get him in here to record with us one of these days. You know what? I would actually like to do a little panel type of thing. Maybe get him in here with like a Mark Stoloroff or something like that to talk about the future of filmmaking because this guy is really tapped into that, especially for like people who are DIYers in the sort of like uh, low budget or uh, home studio sort of stuff. I can't think of anyone, you know, maybe better than than him and a couple other people to have come in. We should pitch this to Alana and see if we can set it up. I think it'd be great. I mean, and I think we should leave this in the show and just let let Kay's hear it because it has, he'll like call me immediately and be like no I'm not doing that or absolutely <laughs> I want to do that but uh he made a music video I don't did you see the music video he made some uh probably a year or so ago was it the science fiction one yeah sort of yeah with like, and it, like, it was yeah, like yeah, entirely really shot cool. on his porch with green screen and then he like built this entire CGI world that is amazing and gorgeous and it's like uh, I don't think we mentioned uh here but Kay's did all the music that you heard in the show he's a composer but he's also everything else. So uh, yeah, uh, he's a, yeah, we, we a, should a get him on director here. VFX, and colorist, you name it. And uh, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody. Holy crap. Producer Alana of the show. Cody, keeping us busy. Man. Too busy. Hardest working podcast producer in podcast town. She's hustling, getting us some amazing interviews. We have several coming up. One in particular that I'm very, very excited about. I won't say which one because I don't want the other ones to be offended. <laughs> you don't. don't. Don't don't offend them before you even talk to them. It'll be bad. Yeah. So, Ben, I think that just about does it for this uh, this episode. Wraps it up. All right. Well, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.